I'm Dr. Sterling. I'm a board-certified OBGYN and mom. Welcome to the Becoming Moms podcast, where I give you the step-by-step to optimizing your physical and emotional wellness in pregnancy so you can create a nourishing environment for your baby, your family, and yourself. The information shared in this podcast is intended for general education purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or another qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you heard in this podcast. All right, lovelies, let's dive in to this week's episode. Today, I am sharing part of my All About Hormones Masterclass. In this podcast episode, you will learn about pregnancy hormones and what you can expect from them as you move through the different trimesters. This full masterclass covers the hormones of the menstrual cycle, why and how hormones can impact our emotions and behavior, the hormones of pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and breastfeeding. This masterclass is available exclusively inside the Sterling Parents membership, and members of Sterling Parents, you can listen to the full audio from this class on the Sterling Parents private podcast, or watch the video of the class on the member site. Let's get to the class. All right, everyone. Welcome to the All About Hormones Masterclass. Hormones are about communication, okay? Your nervous system and your reproductive system, they need some way to talk. They need to know what each other's doing, and they do that through hormones. You know, as you as we go through this class, you'll understand why it's so important to understand that hormones are about communication, because oftentimes we will blame hormones when really hormones are just trying to communicate between two systems. And it's really often a lot of things we think of as a hormonal problem are really an underlying system problem because we can't fault the signal when it's actually the underlying system that is that is having an issue or malfunctioning or, you know, what have you. So a lot of people ask, okay, when can we detect a pregnancy? When is the pregnancy hormone detectable? When we look in the blood, we can see beta HCG as early as eight days after ovulation and one day after implantation, okay? It takes your egg and sperm. The egg and sperm fertilization doesn't occur typically in the uterus. It occurs in the fallopian tube, okay? By the time an egg is in the uterus, it's on its way out. It occurs in the fallopian tubes and it takes a week to get into the uterus and implant, okay? So one day after implantation, we can um, usually detect, we can detect some um, pregnancy hormone level in the blood. Then a lot of people are asking, what about at home? When can I detect a pregnancy at home? The most sensitive pregnancy test, and in the U.S. that's first response, will detect 97% of pregnancies on the first day of the mismenses. Now, I know a lot of them say like, oh, you can detect a pregnancy five days before. Yes, a certain percentage of people will be able to detect their pregnancy before the mismenses, but even at the first day, we're still not perfect. So um, the earliest really at home that you um, can reliably, if you have a really sensitive home pregnancy test, would be the first day of your mismenses. Okay, 
So let's talk about what happens to beta HCG in pregnancy. Beta HCG is this green line here. And essentially, at the, the first um, you know, month of pregnancy, um, up through, you know, around like the nine, uh, eight, nine week mark, we are seeing beta HCG increase a lot. In general, it increases about, um, uh, it about doubles every 48 hours. Sometimes it's a little bit under, sometimes it's over. Um, but in general, it's about doubles every 48 hours. And then we see that around the nine, 10 week mark, we kind of reach a plateau and then we start decreasing, okay? And I tell you this because many people will experience some relief in their pregnancy symptoms around that 10 week mark at the end of the first trimester. I was never one of these fortunate people. I never experienced that, but I'm telling you because um, for some people, um, particularly those who have experienced a loss before, that relief and symptoms can be really scary and they think that, oh my gosh, this means that I'm gonna have a pregnancy loss. Um, but just know that that can be very commonly seen, very normal. All right, so let's talk about insulin. I venture to guess that very few of you thought that we were going to talk about insulin um, in this class, but it's actually really important. So insulin is a hormone, and it is the hormone. It's a hormone that's released by your produced and released by your pancreas in response to glucose. So when you eat, your body is going to break down um, and turn your your energy into glucose so that it can be used by your cells. Insulin is released when you have glucose in your blood because it's basically going to your cells and saying, hey, you need to, you know, there's glucose in your waiting room if you want to open your door because the glucose has to get inside of the cell to be used as an energy source, okay? So when we eat, uh, insulin is going to increase so that our cells can take in that glucose and use it as energy. Now, when we're pregnant, insulin secretion almost doubles after we eat. What does that mean? That means we have far less glucose just hanging around. Our cells are taking up all of the glucose that we that's that's in our bloodstream. And so people will feel like they have to eat more frequently that, you know, there's a lot of um, signals to your brain to tell you to eat more in pregnancy, but one of them is certainly this, this increase in insulin so that your, um, your blood sugar level is going to be lower in pregnancy than it would be otherwise. So that's why some people are like, oh, I, I, I always feel like my blood sugar is low and I have to eat all the time. That is a, a change uh, due to the increase in insulin um, secretion in pregnancy. Now, the interesting thing is that our sensitivity, our cells are just as sensitive to insulin at the, in the beginning of pregnancy as they were pre-pregnancy. So we really are taking up more glucose. And what that leads to is we can't use all of that glucose, okay? What it does is it increases lipogenesis. And lipogenesis is a fancy way of saying fat production. And it's going to increase fat deposition. So some people are like, I'm only in my first trimester and I'm already getting like, I'm gaining weight in weird places in my body. Like what is going on? I'm, I'm not even like, you know, I wasn't expecting this until my third trimester. And a lot of this can be explained by insulin. 
Now, our sensitivity to insulin is going to decline in the second half of pregnancy so that you're going to need more and more insulin to do the same thing. And so you're going to have more glucose hanging out. This is why pregnancy predisposes people to developing gestational diabetes. It predisposes you to um, not being able to take up enough glucose from your bloodstream into your body. And if, when glucose is just hanging out in your blood at too high of levels, it's not good for you. It's not good for baby. So that's why we have to test around 24 to 28 weeks to say, hey, has this person's insulin sensitivity gotten so bad that we actually need to help give them more insulin because their body's not able to do it? And even for those who've already who already have diabetes, as they progress in pregnancy, they're very likely going to need. I, I don't think I've ever seen somebody who didn't need an increase in their insulin as they went through because your body becomes less sensitive to it. You need the more you need more insulin to do the same thing. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about estrogen. So this graph has a lot of lines on it, but I just want to draw your attention to this blue graph. The orange graph is also, the orange line is also estrogen, but let's really focus on the blue graph. What I want you to see here is that estrogen just keeps going up, 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 up. And this is orders of magnitude higher than you ever see during your menstrual cycle. Your estrogen is way higher than any other time in your life during pregnancy. And estrogen does a lot of things. Estrogen helps our uterus grow. It helps increase the blood supply to our uterus. And in very simple terms, I want you to think of estrogen kind of as like a pro-contraction. It's pro-contraction. And then progesterone is also increasing in pregnancy. It's this green line right here. You see it steadily goes up. Progesterone, I want you to think of it as anti-contraction. Progesterone is a smooth muscle relaxer. You have two types of muscle in your body. You have skeletal muscle and you have smooth muscle. Skeletal muscle is the muscle that we have conscious control of. I can look at my bicep and say flex. I have control of that. Well, we also have muscles in our intestines or our esophagus, our uterus, but we can't say, okay, uterus contract right now. We don't have conscious control of it. It's smooth muscle. So progesterone relaxes the smooth muscle of our uterus uterus, it relaxes the smooth muscle of our intestines, our esophagus, our blood vessels. So that can ex that explains a lot of the pregnancy symptoms we have of constipation and heartburn and low blood pressure. So that is uh, how I want you to think of progesterone as we move through this. I also want to talk just a little bit about stress hormones. So there's a lot of different stress hormones and Stress hormones are necessary for survival. Every morning when you wake up, you get a nice little surge of stress hormones that wakes you up and, and helps you go from feeling sleepy and tired to alert and awake. Stress hormones are not universally bad. We need them to survive. The cool thing about your placenta is that up through 34 weeks, your placenta actually has, and I say your placenta, it's actually your baby's placenta, but the placenta actually has an enzyme that helps break down one of the stress hormones. It's not perfect, but it's a pretty good barrier so that your um, the uh, developing fetus baby isn't seeing the full 
extent of stress hormones that are in your body up through 34 weeks. At 34 weeks, that barrier starts to decrease. So we, your, your baby developing fetus starts to be exposed to more of your stress hormones. Now, there's probably a reason for this. It, I'm not, I don't want it to make it sound like this is a bad thing. There's probably a reason for this, but it's just something to keep in mind um, oftentimes at the end of pregnancy, we actually do the op, we increase our stress, like we're trying to get ready for baby, trying to get, you know, things done with work. And maybe we're not prioritizing stress relief quite as much. Whereas, you know, when we look at the fact that babies being exposed to more stress hormones at the end of pregnancy, perhaps it's just as, you know, perhaps taking um, steps to really prioritize stress reduction at the end of pregnancy is important. So that's all I wanted to say about that. Pregnancy can be really hard. On top of all the physical stuff, there's the emotional impact of not feeling well and not feeling at home in your body for months on end. If you are having a tough time in pregnancy, you are not alone. I have so been there and I want to help you. Head over to thebestpregnancyclass.com to register for my free class, Four Ways to Make Your Pregnancy Easier and Healthier. This class is all about taking some of the stress and overwhelm off your plate. Head over to thebestpregnancyclass.com and pick a time to watch the class from the comfort of your own home. You deserve support, Mama. All right, so let's talk a little bit more about the hormones of labor. This is a really interesting area of research, and the truth is, is that we don't really know what what is the signal, what is the thing that happens that initiates labor. We don't know, but here's what we do know. As I said, we have estrogen that we can think of as pro-contraction. We have progesterone, which we can think of as anti-contraction, and both are at really high levels at the end of pregnancy. But something happens that, that removes the progesterone break on estrogen. So it's not that progesterone levels drop because we don't see that, but it's something that is, you know, hormones have to to work they have to have an impact on the cell they, they they bind to a receptor they do something in the cell so something is maybe changing in the target tissue that doesn't allow progesterone to do what it was doing before and so we leave we the balance of pro-contraction and anti-contraction tilts and one of the things that we think is tilting this balance is inflammation we know that labor is an inflammatory uh, process, not an infectious process. So an infection can cause inflammation. When you have a, a urinary tract infection, it causes inflammation, but you can also have inflammation without an infection. It's called sterile inflammation. We think that it's an, we know that labor is an inflammatory process and we think that there must be a set point of levels of inflammation that your body, once it crosses that level, your body's like, all right, we're going through the changes and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna take away the, the brake pedal of progesterone and we're gonna let labor flow. 
We see that we think that inflammation is has a set point because we see that infection is a huge risk factor for um, preterm birth. So urinary tract infections, kidney infections, vaginal infections, these things can all cause preterm birth, which leads us to that and some other things lead us to think that it's a, there's an inflammatory set point, which makes sense why it's so difficult once somebody has gone into labor, getting them out of labor, if they're preterm and you don't want them to go into labor, very, very difficult. We're not very good at it. So that's what we think about in terms of the, the onset of labor. Now let's talk a little bit about oxytocin. So oxytocin is a hormone that's, re again, released from your brain, and it stimulates uterine contractions, okay? It's also a, like people call it the love hormone. It's a hormone that's involved in the bonding process. Pretty cool stuff. Now, one of the primary drivers of the release of oxytocin from your brain is distension of the vagina. And this is probably why we see that people who are upright in labor have slightly shorter labors and an increased chance of having a vaginal delivery. Because if you're upright, you have more of the pressure of baby's head coming down, distending the vagina. And what can happen is this really, this, this powerful positive feedback loop. As the vagina distends, it sends a signal to the brain, release more oxytocin. The oxytocin goes to the uterus and then causes contractions which further push baby's head down. And then that further distension of the vagina goes to the brain and it's a positive feedback loop. And this can result in something called the fetal ejection reflex. It does not, this is not something that happens to everybody. It happens to some people. Um, I can say this is, I experienced the fetal ejection reflex with Celeste, um, 36 hours of labor, but then at the very end was very quick because this positive feedback loop got going. And um, as someone, I was unmedicated at the time, so it wasn't the most pleasant experience to have this very strong positive feedback loop going, but it is something that, um, uh, that we see, um, particularly um, when people are able to, to move around in labor and um, really um, can utilize the, the benefit of gravity in, in you know, distending the vagina. Okay, all right, let's talk about postpartum hormones. So before I turn to the next slide, I want you all to think back to that graph I showed you of the estrogen and progesterone and how they just increased, 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 increased through pregnancy, okay? And now I'm gonna show you the rest of that graph. Here's where I cut off the graph before, and here's the rest of it. This is what happens after birth, okay? Our hormones drop off of a cliff. So if you can imagine that just with a decrease of estrogen and progesterone in the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle, we see people with, you know, post, uh, you know, PMS and PMDD. Well, what's gonna happen? This estrogen is orders of magnitude higher. The progesterone is way higher. This is a huge decline. So yeah, it is going to impact your mood for 80 plus percent of individuals and how much you are impacted is not really like a you, like a, something that you are consciously con, uh, in control of, right? 
um, there is, we all have different susceptibilities in our brain to these, these drops or changes in hormones. And you might be okay with the, the drop that happens in your luteal phase, but when you experience post that, that drop, your brain might be like, yep, no, we're not, we're not loving this. So that's why upwards of 80% of people are going to experience postpartum blues, which I think is a kind of cute name for a very real process. And postpartum blues typically um, shows up around three to four days postpartum. It can come earlier, can come a little later, and it's typically resolves within two weeks. If you're having those symptoms extend beyond two weeks, then we're looking at something like, okay, is this a postpartum anxiety disorder? Is this postpartum depression? And the symptoms are, you know, sadness, tearfulness, irritability, and just a change in mood swings um, that can be distressing for some people. I remember the first time, you know, with Celeste, my first experience with this, what was so frustrating to me was that I was used to being able to predict what my emotional response would be to something. So like I, if I spilled something, I knew that like it would maybe frustrate me for a second and then I'd get over it. But the weird thing about being in that postpartum blues period is that I'd spill something and then I'd cry and I'd be like, this doesn't feel like me. And it's because your body is in a state that it's never been in before and it can be distressing. So I think, one, it's a very real experience that we 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 want to just because it's common doesn't mean it feels normal. OK, I don't you know, it, it doesn't feel normal. Um, and also there's it's something that we don't talk about enough. And so a lot of people are thinking that this is going to be a really happy time. And then there's like this guilt shame of like, why am I feeling so emotional? I shouldn't feel like this. 100% you should feel like this. This is, you, you know, it's very difficult to exit this period and not have some of these feelings because again, you drop off a cliff in terms of your hormones. So then a lot of people talk about, well, if we go over dropping off a cliff with hormones, let's give ourselves some hormones. So it's both estrogen and progesterone that decrease. Estrogen's an absolute no-go, okay? You are at increased risk of a blood clot, both in pregnancy and postpartum. Blood clots are serious stuff. It's a pulmonary embolus, it's a stroke, it's life-threatening. Giving someone estrogen in the postpartum period is gonna increase that risk of blood clot to an unsafe level. It's not gonna happen. We, you know, not, nobody's gonna do it. Uh, nobody that's smart is going to do it. So then it becomes, okay, what about progesterone supplementation? It makes sense, right? You have a decrease in hormones. Give yourself some hormones. Let's do this more slowly. And I see this. I see this all the time, people prescribing progesterone for um, postpartum depression, anxiety, all the things. Now, if it works for you, freaking fantastic. Keep doing it. The data does, is not conclusive, does not show a clear benefit. In fact, some of the studies show that progesterone supplementation can worsen postpartum depression. So something to be aware of, um, if someone offers you progesterone, it's certainly up to you to weigh the risks and benefits. You can try it. Um, some people swear by it. It's not something that most OBGYNs do, though some like, you know, integrative medicine, um, like, naturopaths and stuff like that will do it. Um, yeah, not there's not data to support it. 
And also, if you happen to be on a progesterone-only uh, birth control, like the mini pill postpartum, super common um, birth control to be on postpartum because um, it doesn't impact milk supply. And when you start it, you're starting to feel some emotions. You, that may be the culprit. So just something to be aware of. All right, so let's talk a little bit about regulating or balancing hormones. This is something I hear all of the time for people who are postpartum. When are my hormones going to regulate? When are my hormones going to balance? Great question, phenomenal question, because we saw what happens to them, right? So it's like, when do I get back to normal? Here's the thing, people mean very different things when they say, when are my hormones gonna regulate? When am I, I have a hormonal imbalance? So when you ask, you hear things like, oh, well, I just mean like my periods are really irregular. Okay, that's one issue. Other people, when you say, why, why do you think that your hormones aren't regulated? Why your hormones are imbalanced? And they'll say, oh, well, I'm, my mood is all over the place. I'm irritable or I'm experiencing postpartum rage. And this is clearly a, like my hormones are just out of whack. Um, or you'll hear people say my weight, like I can't lose weight or I'm losing too much weight or my hair is changing. And so essentially what we're doing here is these are three very different things. And we are looking and we're, we're blaming hormones as the issue. Like, I just need to fix my hormones. But again, this goes back to hormones are a communication in your body. It's very difficult to just fix the hormone. You have to fix the underlying issue. Even with, um, you know, the, the only kind of good example of being able to really fix your hormones is with thyroid disorders. Thyroid is a hormonal organ. Um, your thyroid hormone's about setting your uh, metabolic rate. If somebody's thyroid hormone is low, you can just give them more thyroid and, and they can, um, it will get to the right level. But even then, there's a lot of other lifestyle stuff you can do, kind of holistic stuff that you can do to support someone who is dealing with a thyroid issue. So if you have mood symptoms and you're, you're, you're wondering, when are my mood symptoms going to get better? What are my hormones going to regulate? We don't just wait that out. We actually start taking steps to treat you as a whole person before just, there's not like a six, oh, at six months, you're going to be normal. Oh, at nine months, you're going to be normal that we can't say that. So we we look at the whole issue. If it's a it's, if it's a period issue, then we need to look more into that what's the underlying reason. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So yeah, one of the most common questions that people say is when is my period going to return? Um after I have a baby. And I want to go back to the accountant that's in your head, in your hypothalamus, that's taking in information all over your body to saying, can we afford to ovulate? Um, I'm sorry, prolactin, which is the breastfeeding hormone, is going to come and it's going to report to the accountant, no, you cannot ovulate. I've got a lot of energy demands here. I am, I'm saying no. Other areas of your body may be sending a signal, yeah, we're okay to ovulate. And so it's this balance of your energy demands and 
and how strict is the accountant in your brain that's deciding when you can ovulate or not. So if you're not breastfeeding, about 70% or more of people are going to resume their menses within 12 weeks postpartum. But then when you, when you talked about people who are breastfeeding, you see a huge range. You see people whose period returns pretty quickly. You see people who, you know, they're still breastfeeding at 15 months and their period still hasn't returned. So it's, it's highly, highly variable. And when you're breastfeeding, one month, your the accountant may be like, yeah, uh, we're good to ovulate. We're going to ovulate one time and then we're not going to do it for three more months, you know? So it that's why periods can be so, so irregular and, and unpredictable postpartum. I will say breastfeeding is not the only reason why you might not have a period postpartum. There are some problems and some reasons why you might not be having a period. So if you had a postpartum hemorrhage or you had to um, have a procedure after you gave birth to remove your uterus, there, there are things can happen from those complications that can, that can impact your cycle. And so talking to your provider is never a bad idea so that they can evaluate you in a more, you know, look at the whole picture. I hope you enjoyed this excerpt from my All About Hormones Masterclass. You can find the full masterclass inside the Sterling Parents membership at sterlingparents.com. If you are looking for a trusted source for information about your pregnancy journey, along with support and direct access to me, head over to sterlingparents.com today. Until next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Becoming Moms. If you were looking for more support from me during your pregnancy journey, head over to sterlingparents.com to learn more about our membership. The Sterling Parents membership now comes with a private Instagram account where members can send me direct messages 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Pregnancy is hard. You deserve support. Head over to sterlingparents.com to get the best support available for your pregnancy.